It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Jeff, uh, we said before the start of 2019 we'd record a podcast every week and we haven't quite stayed true to that. It's our first broken promise of the election year and that it's been a couple of weeks. But we've had a decent enough excuse given that I've been moving house and moving back to London and we'll make up for it with two episodes in the next week. Um, That's also risky as we've found the promises. Core promises and non-core promises, <laughs> turning the clock back a bit there. So it's short and sharp from us this week at the top of the show because we've got in the can a, a great chat with Isha Guha, a former England international speedster these days, uh, host of the Fox Sports cricket coverage. Jeff, she's brilliant going through uh, the ins and outs of her career, both on the field and off the field, and her academic career as well. And, uh, yeah, she, she, was a, she was a wonderful person to have that conversation with. One of a series of interviews we did over the last few weeks, and as you say, we've got to quickly rush through a bit of business in the cricket world. It's not like there's been any shortage of things going on. The Alan Border medal being handed out to Pat Cummins and Elisa Healy winning the Belinda Clark medal. We've seen the uh, end of the Big Bash. The all-Melbourne affair, neither Melbourne side had managed to win a title in the first eight years and so given they both made it, there was at least some surety in knowing that at least one Melbourne team was going to win Uh, but it it didn't necessarily pan out the way it looked like it was going to, I'll tell you what. I want to have a longer conversation with you about the BBL, uh, the structure of it, the way it's going at some point when we've got a bit more time and when you finished arguing 
on Twitter with cricket administrators. It feels like, Jeff, you're in this rolling brawl <laughs> with anyone with a, a CA or a, a formal Twitter handle who's worked in cricket administration you're having a scrap with at the moment about the length of the BBL. Are you, are you having fun um, having your post-season rest, which is in, you know uh, spending your time duking it out with cricket administrators? I'm having a, a jolly old time. It's one of the things <laughs> I appreciate about a, a couple of administrators and as of now former administrators, um, particularly Andrew Jones, who's just finished up at Cricket mm. New South Wales and uh, Nick Cummins at Cricket Tassie. They're both very willing to get involved and talk to the punters and put their side of the story. So um, it, it, it's good fun putting our respective points of view in a robust and respectful fashion, I think you could say. And neither of you are letting up, though. It's, 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 uh, <laughs> it's good crack for those watching from the cheap seats. So well, we will deal with that. But um, the final in isolation, Jeff, uh, this, this kind of um, picked up on a theme which I'm quite interested in, which is choking. Mm-hmm. I've been reading a bit about this for the last couple of years and a friend of mine who works in the England system, Rich Hudson, wrote a book called Pressure Myths last year, which I highly recommend, which is pretty much just about this, about the idea that, um, you know, well, it doesn't deal with choking per se, but the idea that um, the way that professional sports people fail to deal with pressure situations and the way they are unable to play freely at the most important times of their career. And, and this was the classic example of that, wasn't it? I mean, the Stars losing seven for 19 from an impregnable position, having dominated the game to that point. It, it, it blighted any common sense. But I think it's a bit of a, a bit of a cop-out when you simply say, oh, well, look, they, they took the gas, they, um, the, the pressure caught up with them, they, they mm. capitulated, they folded and so on. Like, this is a, it, it's like a trope, right? We talk about choking, we talk about South Africa in global tournaments or Greg Norman at the 96 Masters or whatever. Whatever it is, these familiar um, examples of uh, elite sports people failing at, at important tests. But I don't know, it, it feels as though it has to be more robust than simply, oh, the pressure got to them. It, it was because it was such a spectacular capitulation. Well, also, you know, maybe it's a condition of probability where, you know, cricket is a, a sequence of events that um, can inform the next event in the chain. You know, most times, most likely, you're going to get a batsman who'll be able to do something or, or you know, in the midst of after a couple of wickets fall, the next thing that's less likely to happen is that another one's going to fall, but you can still get an, an anomalous sequence. So it seemed watching that match that it was also just partly to do with the conditions out there in that game. It was hard to start. The openers who did kick things off took a little while to get going, and so even though they were none for 93 or whatever it was... It, they weren't quite up at the rate that they they needed mm, to be and mm. so for everyone else coming in it was just hard to get going and if you have a bad run of luck everybody who tries to get going gets out which is what happened in that sequence yeah i think there's a part of that and, and also like the, the sort of thesis of this book is that uh when players get into these situations they try and sort of think their way out and they 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 externalize these different elements and, and turn them into like for example you can turn a, a game of cricket into a life-altering moment and once you build it up and build it up and build it up it means you uh, lose what's previously an automatic movement whether it's the way you're batting or the way you're executing um, skills that you've been mm. uh, that have been not second nature because of course you you work on these these skills for you know the the majority of if your professional life if you're a cricketer but it does lead me to think that more work can be done on this because this was the classic example of 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 the choke and I don't know. I don't think it can simply be the case that you get to a big final and it's a toss of a coin as to whether a team can cope with the pressure. It feels as though more can be done before the fact uh, to ensure that players are in the right mindset so that you don't end up with a sequence of 
Yeah, sure. A, a randomised sequence that you're talking about in a game of cricket is possible, but it felt like it was more systemic than that. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's the sort of psychology of cricket. We talk about a lot on this show, Jeff, about players and the way they prepare and uh, and a lot of different sporting organisations have drawn on um, the meditative process and mindfulness and so forth in order to clear the mind. But um, this seems to be one part of our sport which still bobs up time and again despite the fact that they're very experienced in run chases and so on. It's interesting to me that even when the fifth went down, at that point I think they needed 36 off three overs or something like that, which is pretty achievable in the T20 era. And it's really only with the Dan Christian over when when the sixth and seventh wickets fall, when uh, Gotch and, and Bravo were just that suddenly it went from something that one team should still win to something that became unwinnable. So it was only really in the last two wickets of the seven-wicket streak that it became a collapse or that it became a choke, whereas up to that point it was just, oh, the, those are the casualties of T20 cricket. You come out, you play some shots, and you'll lose a couple of wickets along the way. I like that a bit of the conversation after the Renegades win went to Dan Christian's success across several countries in multiple competitions Yes, he's a veteran uh, of, of the game. There's no doubting that. But he has to be some chance to uh, re-enter calculations for the Australian T20 side. It's not as though it's a it's an open and shut case who'll play in that T20 World Cup next year. He, he's still travelling the world, playing top-level cricket consistently, and he can still be a match winner with bat and ball. He's got to go to India. He has got to go, got to be on that plane. Do you reckon the currency of that joke will continue for four or five more years? You're going to have to explain it. It's been, it's been, it's that long ago. Well, I think that every, like probably every four years, we'll be going back to India for an ICC tournament <laughs> anyway. So it's just going to refresh itself. Uh, we're, we're always True going enough. to India. Australia's going to India every six months. Um, They're going there right now. They're yeah, flying over there to play some international. He's got to go. He's got to be on that so plane. Get him over there. Well, indeed, the T20s come first. Maybe Dan Christian should be on his way to India. Should be on right the plane now. to India. Um, but yeah, Dan Christian, how good, you know great great man what what a lovely fella he is yeah he's just it, it's one of those cases of good things happening to good people once in a while which is which is so nice to see and the way that he won it for them in the semi-final i mean the renegades were gone in that semi-final and they were they were stuffed mm. and he came in 31 not out of 14 a couple of the best sixes you'll ever see carving over cover and then comes in in the final and does the opposite sort of batting job when they'd collapsed and he had to rebuild gets them up to a defendable total, takes a couple of catches and a couple of key wickets in defending that small total, and he's got them a title. And Glenn Maxwell, uh, Jeff, who got the stars uh, to the final two with two unbelievable performances uh, to end the group stage. And, well, the, the semi-final was, was, was more believable, but the... But the the final group game, uh, which just was a, a timely reminder, perhaps after you know a, a, an up and down BBL season for him, that he has still uh, the capacity to do things that most people can't. Speaking of players who can do magnificent things on their day, the Kusal Pereira innings, Sri Lanka's yeah. Test match in South Africa, 153 not out to chase 304, nine wickets down, putting on 76 with the last man in. What an extraordinary performance. It was a perfect contrast to what we talked about with the Stars before about faltering under pressure. It's as though the, the tougher the degree of difficulty got for Kushal Pereira, who I should add was smashed on the side of the helmet by Joe Richardson just a fortnight before at Canberra. The last time we saw him in the flesh, Jeff, he was in a pretty bad way. And to think that 
he could walk out 10 or 11 days later or whatever it was and, and play in innings of that capacity. And yeah, the freedom, the way he struck those five sixes, I was pretty unlucky actually. I went underground on the train for an hour just when it all got hot and heavy and missed the ending. But I know you were watching live and I looked through your Twitter feed at the time. It was it was the sort of thing where, you know, uh, tell your friends, get around the TV. It, it immediately goes into the, what sort of the, the consideration of the top five or top 10 test innings ever played. Yeah, well, um, some of the statos around online have been running an analysis suggesting that it might be statistically speaking the best test innings ever given the degree of difficulty <laughs> um Sri Lanka away from home against South Africa who you know Vernon Philander was injured but they still had you know a three-pronged pace attack with Rabada and Stain and uh, Dwayne mm-hmm. Olivier who's who's no slouch and he, he was actually the one roughing up Pereira he smashed him in the rib cage and, and hit him in the head as well and Rabada hit him in the hand and it looked at that point like Pereira might have to retire hurt again but he didn't he battled on and even when it was nine down and, and this is the bit that I love most is that Vishwa Fernando, the, the pace bowler who came in in Canberra because all of the pace bowlers fell over. I think he made two ducks at Canberra as well. He's not... Um, yeah, he did. Yeah, he made a pair and, and, and looks like the worst cricketer. It looked like the worst batsman you've ever seen. That's yeah. right. Um, and so he got off the mark with a five because he edged a ball into the cordon along the ground. They tried to take a single and got four overthrows. He stuck it out for 27 deliveries he faced, a couple of full overs from Dale Stain that he managed to get through. And he took some wax and got hit on the body. And But he'd come out and said to Cusel Pereira, I'll, I'll just block the ball with my body um, and hope for the best. And somehow at the other end, Pereira's going, well, we're not going to win it if I sort of make one or two and over. So take them on and as you say he started peppering the bank with sixes at, at Kingsmead and somehow miraculously got them over the line. 153 not out which is the same score that Lara made of course in 1999 at Barbados which is usually the innings we say is the the greatest of our lifetime so it sits alongside it with the exact same score which is nice bit of synergy also I think it was um, roughly five wickets down with the score within five or six chasing a target that's roughly the same as well 308 Sri Lanka chase I think the West Indies were after 305 that day so it's it's all it's all it all lines up really neatly with Lara um, and uh, it's also Mark Wall's high score 153 not for nothing uh, yeah. so, uh, so the sort of things you remember you, you um, would know but, that yeah, yeah. I, I, I have been following Mark Wall closely the last couple of days oh, um, on social media. The um, Yeah, or less so these days. Gee, he doesn't like Matthew Wade, does he? He, uh, <laughs> he, he, he? he really doesn't fancy the idea of Matthew Wade playing test cricket. Of, um, mm. I saw him questioning whether he could possibly be a number four or a number five in test cricket, having an average of, I think it was an average of 22 after 28 tests or vice versa, um, to which someone replied on Twitter, what was Steve Waugh's average after 28 test matches or whatever it was? It was, you know, it was one of those classics that are, yep. if he paid a bit more attention, he, he'd know that he was opening himself up there. But uh, but yes, Casal Pereira, pretty good at cricket. He was, um, he, he, the other thing about Casal Pereira was he wasn't considered to be a player with the temperament for test cricket. He was more a white ball player, had that mullet for a while there. Um, yeah, he, he wasn't, you know. No one with a mullet's it, welcome it, it, in test cricket, is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, it's, it's like, you, you just didn't see it in the stars for him. It, like, you know, I don't know, if Barbara Azam did this for Pakistan, you'd say, oh, okay, prodigy. Or if, um, or if uh, Kushal Mendes, his teammate, in the Sri Lankan side, if it was someone like that, a young player coming through, you know, with, with that kind of prodigious talent, you would sort of think, okay, well, I can I can see how that's occurred. But 
I don't think anyone really expected this from Kushal Pereira. Well, I hope it becomes one of those things that boosts him and elevates him rather than being the millstone of, you know, why can't you live up to that one time you did something completely insane and ridiculous? <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, maybe I'm, it will I'm, be. I'm, I'm, <laughs> there, there are a lot of, I'm reticent to do this because our, our friend and colleague Sam Perry will surely pick me up. But it's like when Simon Beaumont kicked eight goals in a half for Carlton against Collingwood. Uh, and, and for the rest <laughs> of his AFL career, it was like, oh, but he kicked eight goals in a half once. But of course, he never came even close to living up to those heights at any stage again through the rest of his football career there are plenty of other things that we might get to in in future episodes but we can't really devote the time to today but uh, all of the byplay between joe root and shannon gabriel you, you're probably pretty familiar with that story but that's uh, that's something that we could talk about more but it's been done in detail elsewhere anyway if you, if you do want to get more on that on the wisdom podcast i was on there last week and, and we spent about 20 minutes talking about it so um that might be a decent place for that we're under 100 days to the world cup plenty of um, chat around that we're pretty close to the rose bowl series between uh, australia and new zealand women's teams the one day series will be starting pretty shortly the australian men's one day team uh, has, uh, arrived in India and they're training up over there and uh, Middlesex women are playing on Lords for the first time which is kind of bizarre that it's taken until 2019 for it to happen but yeah. um, uh, I guess better late than never. They're playing Surrey in the London Cup this year, the Middlesex women and um, they did play against the MCC last year which in like an exhibition game but this is the first one to count and that's after a lot of lobbying uh, over a very long period of time by the Middlesex women so more power to them. Uh, speaking of the England women, they've arrived in India for their three one-day internationals which start in a couple of days. That's a return to international cricket for Sarah Taylor and Catherine Brunt, who both missed the World T20 back in November. Unfortunately, no harm and preet core for India, but an important series when you consider that India are continuing to uh, become a force, one of the, the big three or four in women's cricket, and we're inside now, well, we're nearing 12 months to the next World T20 in Australia. It seems like these tournaments come along so often, but uh, so uh, another building block in, 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 in the lead-up to that. And a bit of exciting news from our front on a personal basis. We launched our subscriber program on the last episode that we put out, which means that, that people can choose to chuck in a, a couple of bucks or five or ten or whatever it is that they feel like per episode. We had a plan which was um, try to get to, say, 100 subscribers by the end of the year. We announced it on that last episode. We've already cracked 50 in, in the first ep. So Raise the bat ride it around like Jason Gillespie if if need be. So that's an amazing result and thank you so much to everybody who's who's jumped on there. If you want to do the same, you go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash the final word. I'm sure you can just Google variants of that and then you can choose what sort of dollars you want to commit to it and it'll do that on a per episode basis but you can also set a monthly cap to make sure that it doesn't overrun what you're willing to commit and big thanks going out to Liz Allison, to Gopal, Tim Unwin, to Stephen Baker, a good friend of the show and, and of White Line Wireless back in the day, Ben McQuillan's jumped on, Eamon Warner, not sure if that's any relation to David, but we'll find out. Sean McNamara, Robert Dingwall, uh, the very mysterious Grant, Tom, Terry, and uh, I like one subscriber whose name is just N, just the letter N. Not going to give away any more than need be. 
And Finelli. And, and, and then at the opposite end of the scale, Dale F. Adams, who's, uh, you know, very formal, sounds like a, <laughs> a, a Civil War general on the right side, I'm sure. I was interested to see Samuel Chappell popped up. Now, I, I played cricket with Sam Chappell on the weekend. Um, I play with mm. two, two Chappell brothers, James and Sam, and I... Both White Line Wireless alumni as well. That's right. And, and batting low down the order, we were 10 and 11, um, but with a retiree to come back in, I barbecued him. I ran him out cold um <laughs> inadvertently ball came off the pad i thought it was going past the key for i said yep and and just ran and he had to respond um and he was out by half the length of the pitch so then note my feelings when i opened up the subscriber list and saw that he'd, uh, he'd elected to support the podcast so <laughs> thanks sam um, run out and some s- more of your teammates Jeff. <laughs> sorry about that one um yeah i got the red ink and we got the win so yikes <laughs> how many how many did you get four big four yeah. Matter, oh, four four not the, out. You were there at the end. I was. Yeah, four out of a partnership of about 35. So that gives you some, some indication of what was happening at the other end. Sean Barry's on the supporter list. Rob Hester. Philip Meng I like because he's come in with a pledge of $2.22. Um, I'm not going to divulge other people's financial details, but that was too good to miss. James Withers, Cameron Allen, Dave Brown, Chris Weinberg, who I uh, crossed paths with at one of the test matches this summer. Hello, Chris. Uh, Peter Dowling, Emma Donnelly. Bernard Sayer, who I've been having some interesting email correspondence with in the, the final word email. So you can email us at finalwordcricket at gmail.com if you want to do that. Uh, Karen Hall, Jonathan Northall, and special mentions to Dan Craddock and Tanya Wintringham. They're showing great support for the pod. So thank you to all of those people on that long list for joining up as a supporter. And if you want to do the same, then jump on patreon.com slash the final word. Enormously grateful for those contributions. Uh, as we mentioned before, it helps keep us sustainable. Another way that you can support us if you're listening in and in one of the five uh, cities that are hosting, well, four cities that are hosting Ashes Test, if if you know a place that, that might be appropriate for Jeff and I to do our thing, please sing out uh, to the to the Gmail account uh, because we're, we're in the process of trying to sort that out at the moment. Um, we've had a lot of correspondence from our uh, listeners in the UK after our live show in Melbourne a few weeks ago. And, and yeah, we're keen to take it on the road. We're going to be there for four months and hopefully around the Ashes series we'll, we'll have the opportunity to have a bit of fun uh, and, and do it live again. Let's get into part two. This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And Jeff, we have someone on the show today we have been talking about getting on as a guest for well over 12 months and I'm thrilled to welcome to the show Isha Guha. She played 113 times for England uh, as an opening bowler, won a World Cup, a couple of Ashes series, which we'll get into as well. These days, she's commentating for Fox Sports, among many, many others. Isha, welcome to The Final Word. Great to be on the show, guys. Um, and yeah, thanks for having me along. Love, love your work. And yeah, great to be on. Uh, uh, when doing the research for this, Isha, I mean, we know each other reasonably well and have known each other for a while now. I thought I knew a fair bit about you. I tell you what, you've done more things in 33 years than most people in a lifetime but the, the thing that stood out to me is that when Jeff and I were growing up in Australia of course we were watching Richie Benno on the television and I reckon Jeff a lot of people our age wouldn't have necessarily known that Richie played test cricket or played cricket at all he was such a 
mm. presence as a commentator that that's what he was defined by for, for so many people and I think um, that may very well be the case for you as well at the moment Isha that people see you primarily as a commentator Jeff that, that's basically right isn't it people yeah I, I think so because he was there was a vague concept that oh he played in the crusty old days in some black and white <laughs> stuff um, but it wasn't really relevant to colour television no, we don't really have that divide but um, yeah I suppose particularly for audiences in Australia where you've popped up leading the, the Fox broadcast they wouldn't necessarily have a background to know who you were as a cricketer no I guess not um, and I always look back at my time playing cricket uh, and it feels like a complete eternity ago. I mean, I retired from England in 2012. So, yeah, it's a long time of not playing. And I pretty much haven't played that much, maybe three games since then. Including so, it, like novelty games like the BBC game yeah. last year, for example. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you stopped playing for England in 2012 after a 10-year career spanning ages 16 to 27, if memory serves me Yeah, uh, 17. 17. Yeah, because basically there was this under-21 tournament the year before, which... I think people took as an England series, but it wasn't. So I, I actually officially made my debut at the age of seventeen. As a five foot tall fast bowler. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give myself a little bit more credit. Five foot one. As a five <laughs> foot one. So I mean, just to run through the numbers as, as we would being a cricket podcast after all. And um, you took 101 one day international wickets at 23. You had a test average with the ball of 18.93. Um, as I said, you, you took the first wicket in the 2009 World Cup final at North Sydney. Um, actually, let's start there. The, the thrill of um, being a World Cup winner. And we saw England win the World Cup in 2017 and, and what a turning point that was for the women's game. But how often do you still think about being a part of that 11 that won the, won the World Cup in 2009? I think it's by far my best achievement um, on the cricket field. Just, And it's not just the day. Uh, and, and a lot of people will speak about their best achievements as being a culmination of it. So many years of really hard work. I mean, when I first started playing for England, it was what 2002. Mm. We were getting beaten by Australia, left, right, and centre consistently. Um, every now and then, we'd beat New Zealand, um, and we were starting to beat India a lot more. So, yeah, we, we weren't a great side, um, and we had to really. We went on this incredible journey from from being pretty average to the best team in the world, and mm. that's that's the year. I mean, 2009, um, we won the World Cup. We went back home under a bit of pressure to perform at home. We ended up winning the World T20, yeah. whitewashed the Aussies in a one-day series and retained the Ashes. I mean, there's, there's nothing more you can achieve after that. And it really was just something very, very special. And it was coming off the back of quite a grim time, as you suggested. I did an interview with Claire Connor where she spoke about this as well, this sort of hoodoo of just being completely unable to get past Australia until when the dam finally broke. Absolutely. And and I think the turning point was 2005. Um, so I made my debut in 2002, and I didn't actually play Australia until 2005 in, right. a, in a World Cup. And I remember Catherine was starting to play then as well. Um, so she made her debut, I think, around that time. And we both played Catherine against, Brunt. yeah, Catherine Brunt. Yep. And we both played against Australia together. And you know, all all the older girls had told us stories about you know the great Catherine Fitzpatrick and Karen Rolton and Belinda Clark, and they just smashed the ball to all parts. And those would be the stories you came into the dressing room with mm. of, of just their complete and utter dominance. So straight away, you know, you, you had this kind of fear of the Aussies. But then, because I guess we had this kind of youthful exuberance, we never really played them before. We didn't have the weight of losing hanging over us i think we just really enjoyed we really enjoyed the challenge of it um and then later that summer we ended up beating them at stratford for the first time in 10 years in a one-day international and it was a bit of a a bitty summer because we had a test match at hove which we saved aaron brindle with a an incredible hundred to save the test match holly colvin making her debut Mm. 
And then we went to Stratford having lost two one-day internationals. So we had to win. And it was probably one of our best performances on the cricket field. And I remember significantly Claire Taylor and Laura Newton, Laura McLeod, yep. smashing or hit, hitting Catherine Fitzpatrick down the ground for a few fours. And we were like, this has never happened before. So, yeah, that was, that was a real turning point for and, us. And later in 2005, the Test match at Worcester, which sort of stands out as one of the high points of your career with the bat. Yeah. That, that sort of famous uh, partnership to win the Test match. S- still my favourite time on the cricket field. I mean, you talk about World Cups and winning World Cups, yeah. but... There's so much pressure associated with that, and we were. The, no one was expecting me and Catherine to to bat for as long as we did. Where were you batting? I, I've, I've heard about I've, the partnership from you before, but where, where were you two in in the order at the time? Uh, 10-11. 10-11, You put on eighty odd or something like that. Yeah, it was amazing because obviously we, we were quite good friends. You know, we yeah, played yeah. cricket together. We just loved being out in the middle facing Catherine Fitzpatrick. I mean, it was towards the end of her career so her pace had dropped a little bit, but she was steaming in. All I remember Catherine talking about was the big left dog get your big left dog down <laughs> get, get it right out of there and you know there were quite a few shots that went through the slips and uh, it's a productive area yeah but it's amazing when you're not out overnight and we were sharing a room together as well so we were just full of excitement we just absolutely loved the fact that we turned up at the ground in the morning and all the batters were giving us throwdowns we were like yeah yeah <laughs> we're gonna be opening the batting today <laughs> And then you press fast forward four years and you're the number one ranked bowler in the world from 2008 to 2009. And then there's the barrel test match, which again sort of stands out in your in your career record as, as a time when you literally won the Ashes for England. Like, again, it's, it's a this is big deal stuff. It had been a difficult tour for me prior to that. I've been in and out the side. Right. I wasn't going to play. And then Jenny Gunn was ill the day before. So Mark Lane, the coach at the time, came up to me and said, you're going to be playing tomorrow and you're going to be opening the bowling. Huh. So you weren't playing the test match where you took the nine for 100? And I remember him coming up to me after I'd been bowling at Lottie, uh, Charlotte Edwards. It was middle practice and I got really emotional because I was just so desperate to play in the test match and I knew that Mm. I wasn't going to. And then he came up to me afterwards and said, you're going to be playing. And I was just like overwhelmed. We ended up bowling first. The conditions were just perfectly suited for my bowling. It was it was not an Australian day. It was overcast. The Bradman Oval is like one of my favourite grounds, yep. not just because of that performance, but because it's just there's something it has an aura about it. Obviously, being associated to, to the legend himself, but the white picket fence, the greenery that surrounds it, it's just got a really peaceful feel to it. Mm. And I remember a little bit nervous and ended up getting a wicket relatively early. And then it was just one of those days where a lot of the greats in cricket have these days on a regular basis. For us average cricketers, (laughs) you have them maybe once or twice in your career. And literally every single ball I bowled, I felt like I was going to get a wicket. And, you know, just little things like Claire Taylor would move herself from my second slip to gully and then a catch would go there like immediately and it'd be like what is going on it's just everything's coming together and then in, in the second innings as well it was I didn't want to be a one-hit wonder I wanted to take wickets again and, and fortunately I was able to do that but it you know it was it was a sort of pitch where I could pitch the ball up and get the ball moving. You were playing through that pre-professional era and the stories you're telling you know, there are little indicators in there you talk about Aaron Brindle who retired early Holly Colvin who retired and went to work for the ICC you gave it up in your mid-twenties as well because it basically wasn't really sustainable to keep playing cricket when you couldn't make a living from it? From my point of view, it was a lot of different circumstances building up together. I mean, I, I had already kind of been playing for England for 10 years 
up until 26 so you know I'd already had quite a long career and been part of a very successful side been on that journey which again I, I feel very lucky to have been part of and we'd achieved everything as a team and th- the only thing left really was to be a consistent form of do- dominance a bit like the Aussies of the 90s right and the West Indies prior to that so to just keep getting better as a cricketer around that sort of time in the year prior to that I was starting to be so I'd always been part of the squad but I'd been in and out of the team Mm. which was fine and I could handle that absolutely fine and then sort of in the year leading up to me retiring I'd started being in and out of the squad so I was having to fight my way back in a couple of times which again I was happy to do because you know you just want to make yourself a better cricketer and then I actually off my own back went to India that winter prior to 2012 for six weeks and I spent a month in Calcutta staying at my grandparents place which was an incredible experience and I played at the and trained at the Calcutta Cricket and Football Club because I just wanted to get better and then I spent some time down in Pune at the Global Cricket School and that's when I realized that I should have done that when I was 18 Mm. (laughs) and at the end of it I was like oh now I know what I need to do if I ever want to be the best cricketer I can possibly be and this is what it feels like to train 24 7 day in day out without any other distractions because at the time I was starting my thesis and I just met Rich the summer before as well so Mm. everything was kind of like coming together and the year before as well I'd had an opportunity with ITV which you know I'd, I'd never seen that as a career pathway for me initially but all all these different things and I went to New Zealand and I remember I didn't feature in a game and I was like you know what I'm happy I feel really good with with where I'm at I was bowling really well in the nets and I was like there were loads of really good young Chris's coming through give them enough chance to to get some experience before a World Cup and I was ready to, to do something different. You mentioned the thesis you were writing, that's just you were doing your PhD at the time. And you, talk us through the academia side and being a biochemist and how hard it was to kind of balance out being quite a serious cricketer, well, very serious cricketer, and also being very serious about your studies and what you were doing, which was so removed from... It wasn't like you were doing sports science or doing something related to cricket. This was a mile away. Yeah, I, I've always been quite indecisive. <laughs> well, when I was younger anyway. So I I liked biology, I liked chemistry. Yep. Didn't know which one I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to be at a London university so close to Lords. So basically do both. UCL uh, allowed me to get the grades that I needed to do that course, yep. but also tr- be able to train at Lords so, and play for Berkshire still. So <laughs> that was like part of, that formed part of my thinking. Um, and then post that, obviously 2009 won the World Cup we'd done everything we possibly could do um, as a team and that's when I started thinking about my future of you know what what am I going to do you know but I can't just be a cricketer so I just thought okay well I've decided I want to carry on playing I want to get better as a cricketer what's going to allow me to do that going forwards and uh, my old flatmate he was doing a PhD in neuroscience at King's and kind of gave me the idea to maybe try and do something like that um, which allowed me to go to university so I would go to Lords um, for about three hours in the morning and then I'd go to the lab at um, the Royal Free for the rest of the day mm. that, that's how how I planned my day and I was able to maintain it for a while but it did get quite long-winded after a while I find that really interesting that you know reaching that point where you say I, I think I've done enough I think I've played cricket enough because it, it it's always amazed me how some cricketers keep going you know into their mid-30s late 30s and, and I do think at times you know how can you stay interested for that long um, but then you do also see those players where the interest vanishes even someone like Mark Hussey who came into cricket late you know he got 
what, six or seven years out of that career and then said, I think that's enough. And mm. he, he could easily have played another couple of years. But, you know, reaching that point where you say, well, I've, I've achieved this, I've, I've played at the highest level for a long time, I've, I've achieved significant things. And, and if you don't have that drive to keep going, if you can't attach that to some future goal, then it must be very hard to... You're not going to have the motivation. It's not going to be real. You'd sort of be forcing yourself or going through the motions to keep doing it. Absolutely, and I didn't want to do that. And when you're playing for your country, you become so consumed by wanting to be the best you can possibly be that you throw everything into it and and that is your priority nothing else is a priority and that can obviously have an effect on relationships you're just so focused and in the zone and you're putting so much pressure on yourself as well and that was just my decision I was never one of these people that was 24-7 cricket and I have a huge amount of admiration for those that can still find motivation after 20 30 years I mean those are the real greats of the game to be able to do it consistently for a long period of time Sachin Tendulkar Ricky Ponting Mm. it's unbelievable some um, of those old fellas in county cricket, who, yeah. you know, Wilfred Rhodes at 52 or whatever it is, still, still troubling and it them down. Is, it's just, I find that really fascinating. But for, from my point of view, I've always been someone who, and, and this is something my parents instilled in me as a youngster. Dad always wanted to, rather than have a big house, he wanted to take us travelling and see the world. And I've always been very passionate about lots of different things um, and experiences and life. So it was a very difficult decision because I felt like I was letting the team down. But I also knew that it was the right thing thing to do because I, I felt in a good place rather than being bitter and, and leaving in a in a bad way mm. I was really happy with the decision I made I feel like we've now explained to the listeners that you had quite the career before going forward to what you've done since I kind of want to go backwards and explain how you got to becoming a professional cricketer in an era where where women's cricket wasn't on Broadway it's not as though it is now when the revolution's being televised as it were like it was at the 2017 World Cup you were much earlier than that and you grew up in High Wycombe so not far from London proper talk us through how you went from presumably being a kid watching it on television to, to playing club cricket and so on my brother seven years older than me already playing at the local cricket club he was playing lots of different sports I basically just wanted to copy everything he did from the sports he played to the music he listened to right so you know it was so cricket and tennis in the summer badminton and hockey in the winter my parents were very encouraging they wanted me to do lots of extracurricular activities so yeah I started at the local cricket club at High Wycombe which was five minutes down the road yep. my parents kind of first saw my interest when I used to try and chase after the ball when my brother was practicing in the back garden and we had quite a long and thin garden so it was perfect for uphill into the wind <laughs> <laughs> it was the classic story I mean you've heard it many times my brother got me out pretty cheaply and then I spent the rest of the evening bowling at him I can't remember who it was that suggested I went down to the local cricket club, but there weren't any girls' teams around at the time. I think my dad was quite reluctant, but my mum persuaded him, as she so often did when, I, when we were younger. And I look back at it now, and I think actually it was quite significant because when you look at the bigger picture of why there aren't as many female Asians playing cricket at a higher level, I work it backwards to, OK, what was my upbringing? I was the only girl, only girl first and foremost, in a, in a boys' team from an Indian descent uh, in a boys team full of English and boys from Pakistan descent so when you look at that from the outset culturally and from lots of different communities that could have been frowned upon Mm. but because my parents never saw that as an issue no one else did and so it just became Isha's playing cricket rather than Isha's the only girl in a boys team you know and that just helped my confidence because you know at that age eight nine you're kind of learning all the skills at the same pace as the boys sometimes I like to think the girls learn quicker because they're listening but um, (laughs) 
it's only when you know the guys get older they become stronger it becomes a lot harder but yeah that's that was kind of my grounding and then so badminton was probably my favorite sport but it was cricket that took me further so I was already part of the England kind of development squads when I was 11 12 mm-hmm. um, and playing with the adults at the age of 11 when you would have been four foot tall at that point yeah pretty much <laughs> were, you on, were you on monster for lbws was it all just skidding off the pitch pretty much yeah, yeah that's that's exactly what happened and uh your, your family immigrated from from calcutta how old like was this well before you were born or around the time of... uh in the 70s in the 70s and right. before i get there I, yeah. I have considered wearing stilettos when i bowled well we spoke to we spoke to joe richardson the other night who's, who's you know relatively short he was asked about you know not being the typical big strong fast bowler and he said uh, i don't like to think it's bad it's just different i'm just different <laughs> <laughs> i don't think yeah the stilettos would yeah, you you wouldn't want to land yeah no, no no you might you might have an issue with the groundsman <laughs> as well uh so parents come out in the 70s so yep. you, you know obviously you come along a, f- a fair bit later than that but you, you've always sort of been quite proud of your of your heritage yep. um and that continues to today with your bbc podcast the doosera just talks through the, the the pride in being a british asian woman and, and the leadership role you've played in that community i think when, when i first played for England it was actually quite a big deal and I remember having lots of interviews at the time saying you're the first Indian to play for England Mm -hmm. and I was almost embarrassed by it at the time I was like oh no I don't want you to focus on that I just want you to focus on oh I'm I'm playing cricket for England but only now have I kind of realised the importance of it and the importance of representation for young girls to be able to see someone who they can relate to playing at that level to aspire to be like that themselves so Yes, I am proud of my heritage. You know, I go back on a regular basis now and I'm very fortunate to do so with work. So, you know, I can pop and see my grandparents. But, you know, I have so much admiration and love for my family and and where they came from. If I had time, I'd be able to kind of tell you stories about Calcutta and where my grandparents came from. But Go for it. (laughs) Throughout India, obviously, it's a very vast country. Lots of different kind of sects, if you like, of religion. So you have a lot of Punjabis in the north, Gujaratis sort of in the west, and Bengalis over in the east. And there are obviously many more th- uh, than that, but every kind of sect um, has their own god that they worship and different foods, different kind of takes on tradition. Bengalis were sort of known to, to be quite creative so lots of musicians and poets and actors and actresses came from from that region you would have heard of Rabindranath Tagore so he's a prominent figure in that kind of world so that was the history with my family so my mum's mum so my grandma was a singer and my dad's dad was a film director that whole side of the family really really creative more so my mum's side all of her brothers and her one sister she's an artist brothers all sing and, and play music and it was very much one of those kind of households where everyone used to go and they'd be entertained and my grandma would be singing and my granddad now he's he's 95 <laughs> and he's still going and he's so proud of her music that he always plays it when we go back because he's deaf he, t- he turns it up like full volume and we literally <laughs> uh, our ears are bleeding but no it's 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 just a great place to be and I love going to see them but that's kind of filtered through my mum and how worldly she is the very open-minded my grandparents were um, on my mum's side and I unfortunately didn't get to meet my my dad's parents but they've always been really supportive of of what I've done and at the time of partition in 47 Mm. so they were living in what is now known as Bangladesh so it became East Pakistan and they had to move because of the Hindu Muslim divide so they took all all of their 
stuff, all of their belongings. And there was a lot of fighting going on between the Hindus and the Muslims. So they basically migrated to Calcutta and that's where they have, they've had their property since 47. So yeah, and they're still there now. It's wonderful. Thanks for sharing that with yeah. us. Maybe it's, we shouldn't be surprised that uh, you ended up marrying a musician. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's always been part of the blood. I always wanted to play the guitar, but yeah. just never had the time to kind of... Because it's something you need to practice every day. And um, so I just leave that to Rich. Well, a lot of <laughs> other people probably wanted to play for England. So. Yeah. But being tapped into that sort of broader cultural um, connection in terms, of, in terms of art and creativity and so on, does that help you have balance so that your life isn't just all sport all the time? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, that that's kind of something I've grown up with. And I realised that during my career that actually I, I did need to do something else to just keep that balance in my life rather than just being all consumed by the, the cricket. And when I did eventually retire, I realised how much pressure and, and how much of a bubble I was actually in. All of a sudden I was out of that. And that summer, I remember me and Rich travelled to Europe a lot and we went to loads of music festivals and it was like a really nice time. The final word, of course, is brought to you by Kookaburra Cricket. If it's not Cooker, it's not cricket. Jeff, I, uh, I joined a new cricket club during the week. I feel like I'm cheating on my club in uh, my previous club to have done so, but I've moved house and it, it required, um, you know, making the shift. And in turn, I went along to Winternets uh, the other night for the first time, which means that my shoulder feels like it's going to fall off. But uh, it, it was a reminder that in the Winternets in England, there's this stark contrast between slow and low cricket outdoors, which we'll get in April and May, no doubt, and the fearsome stuff, the, the treatment you cop when, you, when you're batting uh, in, in a winter net on concrete and much more the case that you don't just need your pads and, and your gloves in the conventional sense. You need a, a chest guard and an arm guard. And if you're after one of those, where better to go than Kookaburra, which um, has, <laughs> ha, has it all at kookaburra.biz if you want to join the team, Team Kookaburra, and you can be in the prize to pick up any of the essentials. But some of the add-ons, I know for me personally, between now and the next time I drop along, I'll be, I'll be getting myself an arm guard. I was just wondering if uh, winter nets is somehow related to summer nets, uh, if they're sort of... <laughs> In Canberra. <laughs> converse yeah. sides of the sporting coin or the, yes. the, the seasonal yes. variations. <laughs> what, yeah. what, what happens in autumn and spring? I don't know. Um, I might be the only person that's done both summer nets and winter nets, <laughs> having been a former resident of, of the ACT. I also put on my Kookaburra shirt that they gave us, Jeff, uh, for the live show, um, which um, on reflection, as a long sleeve number, probably isn't the most appropriate for bowling. And I did cop a little bit of shtick, but it's a lovely bit of kit. If you like the creams, go to Kookaburra as well. But I think you're just uh, representing the colours with pride out, out on the streets. Of, not many people know this, but I've actually got the Kookaburra logo tattooed over my heart. So. <laughs> So, you know, I, I don't get it out for just anybody, but I do get it out <laughs> once in a while. Better, better than the yeah, better than the tattoo that uh, the Kelsey Grammer's got. Maybe get the Kookaburra tattoo done there. Better than, better than um, Richard so Nixon's face on between <laughs> between your shoulder blades. Good lord! Yeah, it's an option as well. Uh, we've we've been saying through the summer that if you join Kookaburra Doppies, the team Kookaburra, you have access to well a whole host of bats, including the Kahuna, the Ghost, the Surge. The Blaze, I love the names. Maybe we should try and name a bat for the next season. Yeah. Jeff. What would you what would you call a bat if you were The Dino? The Dino. The um The Dino is an obvious one. The punter. Like name them after the players going back to who are Kookaburra heroes. What about the the MST? The metric shit ton of runs. <laughs> the cow and ton. Oh, that'd be tremendous, wouldn't it? 
the uh, uh, yeah I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure I'm not sure Ed's a uh, oh, in fact I know he's not a Kookaburra person so he might not approve us linking him to this but maybe we just name a bat in his honour at Kookaburra mm-hmm. and bring him over to the family just call it 30 off 100 miss you Ed and you walk, please come back make a comeback Ed when there was an opener spot vacant during the summer when Aaron Finch hit the fence I wasn't joking when I said on Twitter that if Ed made a comeback right then who knows he's exactly the Colin Cowdery style mm. Uh, returns to professional ranks at the precise time, made himself available for his country. But yes, Kookaburra.biz is Team Kookaburra, where you can win prizes. And of course, if it's not Cooker, it's not cricket. This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and joined by former England international and now prominent Fox cricket commentator Isha Guhart. Now let's deal with this other side of your life, the the media storm that you've been part of for the last now six years. It's quite remarkable, the volume of places you've worked for um, on television, on radio, presenting, commentating cricket and the Olympic Games and many other things along the way. Um, Perhaps you can give us a sense of how it started. Where did this journey in the media begin for you? I'd done a few little bits and pieces with Sky and the BBC when I was playing. And then this opportunity came about in 2011. I remember I got, I got a, a message on Twitter from ITV because there was no other way of getting hold of me, apparently. I d- had no idea what it was about. And I met Tony Pastor, who was the head of sport, who wanted someone to, to get involved with the IPL coverage in a couple of weeks. And their host at the time, Mandira Bedi, um, was pregnant. So initially I thought they just wanted me as like a an analyst or just someone to come and talk about the cricket and then he dropped it on me that he needed a host (laughs) and I was like great amazing literally just tried to embrace everything put a smile on my face and was like I'm ready for the challenge no worries went in for a screen test did that and I was fortunate to be able to work with Matt Smith who obviously really experienced broadcaster as a host on the show literally I look back at some of that in fact I I don't look at it now but (laughs) some of that stuff was just horrendous when you look back at it it's you know I was really wooden I didn't know which camera to look at the only thing that got me through it was my cricket knowledge and and I knew what questions to ask so fortunately they asked me back and then on the back of that it kind of just took off really India came calling so Sony Max and their extra innings show which was a completely different style of show just pure entertainment I mean they had drums on set cheerleaders you expected to dance onto the stage it was just crazy (laughs) my kind of show yeah literally probably about 20% cricket chat so (laughs) then I got asked to do some presenting for India Sri Lanka so on one of their overseas tours which at the time I didn't realize how big it was I did it and that was the first time I'd worked without autocue and again you know just a completely mind-boggling experience but that summer um, so 2012 I was doing a lot of commentary with BBC and Sky and and just from that I got the bug I never I never thought that it would be a career for me I just enjoyed the experiences and and then I realised that actually there were some more opportunities coming up. So it, it was just great to be able to get the experience in all the different aspects of broadcast, whether it be radio or TV, lead or summariser. Because when I first did some TV commentary, I had no idea what the difference was between a lead and a summariser. I mean, mm. I've been watching TV my whole life, cricket TV, and had no idea about that sort of thing. So, um, and I mean, I, I know you guys can appreciate it. It's It's a completely different beast. And then just getting used to different countries and how they like their commentary so England let it breathe 
go to India, you need to pump it up a lot more, be really excitable. Australia is probably a bit more banter involved. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was happy to get all those experiences. It's a very steep learning curve, though, it's for you to just be suddenly thrown into that. Yeah, absolutely. But I guess when I look back at everything that I've done, I generally have been thrown into all sorts of things. And you may look silly initially, but you you just see them as experiences and you're going to learn from them. So I'm just glad I, I had so many. One thing that's interesting with you as a, as a pure commentator, let's use radio as the example, is that you were a summariser and you became a ball-by-baller. I mean, you commentated your first test match as a ball-by-baller last year between England and India. Not many people make that switch. I know Jonathan Agnew did. He was a summariser for one year and became a ball-by-baller. But uh, like that's a, quite a remarkable achievement in itself to, to go from one to the other. And the thing that gave me the confidence to be able to do that was the opportunity I had with Triple M. So, right. again, that just came out of nowhere, that op- opportunity. I, I was coming to Australia. I just finished my thesis. I wanted to have a break and come and see my mates in Australia and, and literally just relax, go to the beach. And Triple M said, we'd really love you to be part of the coverage. You're basically here for the time that we, we've got the coverage. And I was like, awesome. I've never really done that much ball by ball, but I'll have a go. Yeah. <laughs> and it is very different because there were loads of adverts and there were three people on at one time. So you haven't got as much time to fill. But that was a good stepping stone to, to TMS. Right. In a way, did, did that help you pare down the task? Because literally you've just got to describe the action in the most concise possible way and then let all the other sort of stuff come in around you? Abs- absolutely. And I discovered a new passion as well. You know, just I've always appreciated ball by ball commentators and how they describe things. Ali Mitchell does it incredibly well. Yeah. Aggers, all the experienced ball by ballers, daggers. I, I just love the way he describes a sky and the different colours of a sky. And, and Dan Allcross, who I've worked with, you know, it's there's so many different ways you can describe something. And I guess that's the creative side of, of things coming through. But huge appreciation for, for those guys. <laughs> It's interesting to me that we've got you leading the Fox broadcast, Ali Mitchell leading the Seven broadcast. Not so much homegrown, there aren't Australian women doing those jobs. Yeah, and I, you know, Mel Jones is around and Lisa Stalaka, and I have a huge amount of respect for, for Mel Jones as a lead caller in the game, and she's been doing a lot. I guess what happened with Fox was I'd already worked with them a little bit and been over here with Australian broadcast with Triple M working on the test matches so that's how the opportunity with that came about yeah you know, it's it's interesting it's not it's not a critical thing but it, it seems like there've been more opportunities for women women broadcasters in England than there have been here to to get developed to get the experience to, yeah, to, to um, get that many games leading broadcasts and it's, so on. but I would say only in England in the last year or so I think there was a reluctance to have females on male broadcasts in England in the past. And the only reason I've been able to get my experience is through opportunities in India and the West Indies. I'm working on the CPL, working... So the CPL were actually the first T20 tournament to have a female on the broadcast before the IPL invited four of us to go over there. So Mm. there are plenty of talented female broadcasters around the world. But I've been really... I've opened my eyes to a lot of um, female reporters as well with Fox. Um, Nerily Meadows, of course, everyone knows, who have got a, a love for cricket, who, if they just had more opportunities, there'd just be more more and more across the broadcast. Um, I remember going to America a couple of years ago, and I, I was really impressed by a lot of their female hosts. And mm. you could see that they, they actually were pushing it a lot more. There were females on um, basketball coverage, on baseball 
Star actually used me on a, a test series in 2014 on the India-England test series. So that was another step for them. But I, I now think there has been a real shift, certainly in England. And it feels that the IPL had a massive role in that as well. You talk about the four of you that went over there and, and were calling uh, the, the IPL action a couple of summers ago and it generated a lot of attention. That must have been a wonderful thing to be part of in that year when, was it 2016, the year when you went over with Mel and, and Lisa and we were all calling at the same time? It was such a big shift from the IPL. Yeah, it was. And I think they recognised that they wanted representation and to attract more females to the coverage which people who watch the IPL it it is a family show everyone gets home after work and they've got the IPL on straight away it's become like a sitcom at home you know you have your heroes (laughs) and your villains Um, and so you know probably wanted to hear some female voices and just that representation within the commentary box it does feel a bit different Adam doesn't it like it feels like we've reached a tipping point maybe in Australia very belatedly but um, you know oh you can actually have women on sports broadcasting and that's okay like like, uh, Nerily Meadows saying that she got teary when when she heard Uesha calling I think it was Pajara's 100 in Adelaide and she was going you know here's here's a a woman's voice on TV calling a test 100 and yeah it's bloody late and it's taken way too long but it's happening yeah it kind of comes back to our, our, our first talking point of this whole thing Jeff it's that if you're a an accomplished male cricketer it's a very conventional career path for you to go into the commentary box but that wasn't for women and, and that, that's how it's shifting isn't it it's the same goes for someone like Ali Mitchell who didn't play the game professionally but has been a broadcaster for 15 years covered cricket for the vast bulk of that and as a consequence she's getting those opportunities as well it's as though those barriers have been removed to an extent yeah and I'm a big one for, for representation um, I think it's really important to have a mix and a blend of, of journalists and people who have played the game yep because ultimately you're trying to represent the views of people who are tuning in. You can't just have one view all the time. You know, you have to have a plethora of different views. So I think that's what it, it does bring. Uh, and and also just women watching the coverage going, here's someone who knows the game and it's something that I might be able to do in the future. So that's that's what I love about it the most. Life's moving pretty quickly for you at the moment, Aisha. You're on the circuit. Have you had much of a chance to pause and take stock at where your priorities will be, you know, in order to not get burnt out within a couple of years of doing so much travel or so much calling? Yeah, I think, like anyone, you get to a point where you have a kind of wish list of, of how you would like your life to be balanced. <laughs> While the work's been going amazingly well, I've had some things going on at home, and uh, it's it kind of just offers that perspective to you. So you feel very pleased about what you're doing, um, but at the same time, there is that constant battle of knowing where your priorities are. It's something that I guess everyone goes through, you know, and you're constantly, life is about choices, isn't it? You're constantly making choices about what the right thing to do is. To be honest, at the end of it all, I look look back at everything and I say, I just, I feel very lucky and privileged to have done what I've done. And almost that moment of realising that the things we're doing covering a game, it doesn't matter. It's very nice and it's good that it's there, but it's not important in a way. I see the players sometimes and I just, I I think back to when I was in that bubble, I, I look at the amount of pressure that the guys are under at times, you know, not just out in the middle but social media everything like that and I, I just want to say to them don't worry it's okay because it isn't the be all and end all but you can see it you can see it in, in their eyes just how important this is to them which I guess you need to have at times to, to be the best in the world but it's I, I do feel it is important to get to gain some perspective every now and then and what do you think it looks like in say 
five years' time to pick a to pick a year at random. Do you, do, you, do you feel as though your life will be roughly as it is now? That is to say, you'll be covering cricket um, to the extent you are now and travelling and so forth. Or do you think? You or will? does it become like the playing career where you go, "Oh, well, I've, yeah. I've achieved these things. Now I can go and do something else." Or, 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 or do you go back and? I mean, you've, you've literally done a PhD. I mean, do you, do you go back and uh, invest some time in, in in the area you've spent so much time studying and developing your skills? Yeah. Well, that is something that really does interest me. Um, for a couple of years now, I've been looking at trying to combine the two so I'm, right. I'm fascinated by the brain and what happens in the brain particularly in sports people not psych- not psychologically just from a chemical point of view yeah. um, and I think we're reaching a point where we have the tools now to actually research this and, and get the data on it to actually come to some conclusions because we probably only know about five percent about what goes on in our minds um, so that is something that I would be really interested in but other than that yeah no it's it's always been about trying to be the best you can be and you're always learning in everything you do you guys are accomplished broadcast journalists but even you will feel like you're you're still learning every time you do something so it's just a wonderful journey to be on really i'd love you to be able to balance the two so we could have the first doctor in australian broadcasting since dr turf uh, <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure we can find a way through i'm not sure whether dr turf's um title qualified a qualified in, doctor of grass in, in the, knows, in all, in about, knows all about all about herbology uh, Isha, that's that's probably a nice place to leave it it's such a joy traveling the world with you and uh, and seeing uh, you do these remarkable things over the last couple of years and thanks so much for being part of the final word thanks guys great to be on thank you this is the final word with adam collins and jeff lemon and thanks again to isha guha for being so open and and considered in our responses jeff it was it was a lovely conversation it's uh, one of the great pleasures we've had over the last couple of years is getting to sit down with people and dig a little bit deeper and be able to find out who people are and what makes them tick and that's probably enough from us for the week. Jump on the Patreon if you're interested in signing up to subscribe to the podcast and help us keep the lights on and also to leave us a rating or review or spread it around, uh, post a link, share it with your friends, let people know if you're enjoying the listen and uh, we'll be back, well, in a few days' time once we get around to doing the next episode. It definitely won't be long. This has been The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, of course, as always, thanks to Kookaburra Cricket and to Bad Producer Productions, and it's wonderful to be part of their network. Thanks for listening in. We'll talk to you again soon. I had to go about it right.